Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're excited to put this webinar on for you guys, uh, featuring Dr. Marty Lucan and Dr. Mike McShane of EdChoice. And my name is uh, Susan Pendergrass. I'm the Director of Education Research at the Show Me Institute. And for those of you who don't know, the Show Me Institute is an independent research and education organization, and we focus on Missouri fiscal and economic policies from a free market lens. We don't believe the government is the solution to every problem, and we we try to promote policies that, in fact, unleash the uh, power of individuals to, to solve problems for themselves. You can learn more about Show Me Institute at showmeinstitute.org, or you could follow us on Facebook at Facebook slash Show Me Institute or on Twitter. Um, so we will be having a presentation this morning about public school districts, essentially, from our two presenters. And you can, if you have questions, put them, if you look at the bottom of your screen, you should see a Q&A box. You can put them in there. If you want to put them in the chat box, that's okay, too. But we'll uh, save some time at the end of the presentation for for questions, and I'm sure that there'll be some good ones. So right now, I'm going to turn it over to our two presenters. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Marty Lucan, who's the director of EdChoice's Center for Fiscal Research and Education, and Mike McShane, the director of National Research at EdChoice, two very smart individuals who have written a really cool paper about public school districts, and I'm gonna turn it over to you guys. You're too kind, Susan. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen here um, and slowly but surely make it look the way that it's supposed to. Let me clean. And do this. Go away, taskbar. Hang on one second. Of course, this is the time. Here we go. Marty, can I get a thumbs up that it's looking the way that it's supposed to? You are a prince. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to be with all of you today. We are two sons of Missouri, wayward sons, perhaps. Um, I'm originally from Kansas City, went to college in St. Louis. My my family was from St. Louis, so from the U, U City and the Clayton area around there. Marty is a, a junior Billiken, uh, St. Louis U High graduate. I'm a university, I'm a Billiken Billiken. Uh, but anyway, it's great to be with the, the wonderful people of Missouri and what's actually kind of wild. So we wrote this paper, it's called K-12 Without Borders. We wrote it for the Manhattan Institute out of New York City, but please don't hold that against us. Um, but the paper actually starts with an image from suburban St. Louis. And I was almost going to say, here to have people guess where this picture is from. But we actually, you know, we sort of describe it with words. We don't use the picture, but I borrowed this off of Google Maps. Um, but this is Dealman Road. Um, if you look kind of squinting off in the distance, the little kind of uh, barricades on the side of the, the road uh, in the background there, that I believe is the River De Pere. Um, generously described as a river at that point. I think in other places it's a bit more substantial, but there it's the sort of strong stream uh, to pair. But this is, for those of you, um, it's probably uh, clicking. This is actually the border between between the the, the uh, train tracks there and the river to pair is uh, the border between Ladue and Rittenauer. Now, many of the people on the call, if you're from the St. Louis area, you'll, you'll sort of already know where I'm going with this. But when we give this talk around the country, you know, comparing those two school districts along this sort of imaginary border. So to the best of my knowledge, this isn't actually the border between two different municipalities. It's definitely not county lines or state lines or anything. It's just a school district boundary. Um, but according to the great data that the Show Me Institute has put together where I got this from, um, you know, I think in the most recent standardized tests that were administered by Missouri, something like 
You know, in Ladue, I think 73% of students were proficient in English language arts and 71% were proficient in math, whereas in Rittenau it was only 34% in English language arts and 28% in math. So it's wild to see this sort of invisible border that separates these two school systems, where if you happen to live where this picture is being taken, the, the schools that you're able to go to, that you're assigned to, are dramatically different than the ones that, that are also, if you live also in this picture, just slightly further away um, from, from where it's being taken. And obviously, you know, this is just one of any number of borders that we can highlight. And again, the folks that are on this call probably know, you know, some of these school district borders, I think, I, I was checking on their websites, I think Ladue has something like 10 different municipalities that that school district has some part of. Right now, it's nine different municipalities. You know, you're looking at the county lines here. These, these are all lines, these borders that have been drawn, um, separating students that aren't necessarily contiguous with, with municipalities or counties or states. You know, obviously, you see the Mississippi River there that's separating those states. So it's just a very stark example of some of these borders that exist in our education system. Now, part of these are physical borders, right, between school districts of where students can attend. Um, and some of these are like between state borders, right? So obviously on this map, if you head eastward, you're in Illinois when you're, you're in a different policy context, um, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a student, whether you're a taxpayer, it's, it's very different on one side of a border as opposed to another. But some of these borders are also not physical borders but rather the borders that have been put up between different sectors in education, between private schools, public charter schools, charter schools, that can be very difficult if students, even if it's not geographically difficult to make a move to go from one school to another, it can be administratively difficult, as Marty is going to talk about, particularly for teachers trying to go from one sector to another when you're thinking about your pension, retirement benefits. These borders can actually be a big deal. So, you know, why, why Why are we talking about this now, though? Um, because states all across the country are making moves to make these borders more permeable. You know, no state is going out there and eliminating school districts, and, and that's definitely not something that we're calling for in this paper. But states across the country, you can see in Iowa and Utah, Arkansas, Florida, are making massive strides in promoting private school choice. I know in Missouri, there's a hot debate right now around open enrollment, and it's not the only state in the country that's debating uh, topics like that. Charter schools, very similarly. I know there was a big push, I think it was last session in Missouri around charter school funding. So these are all issues that are arising. Um, and, and at the same time, as Marty will talk about, there's always efforts to try and think about teacher pensions and how they're structured and, and who's benefiting and who's being harmed. So this is a time when people are talking about a lot of this stuff. And so I think it's important for us to talk about these borders, their effects, and what changing these borders might look like. And, and what we tried to do in this paper was focus on some areas that are maybe a little bit less discussed, a little bit less covered, um, and hopefully bring up some novel stuff uh, for y'all. But before we do get started, you know, I think it's really important that, that Marty and I are not kind of wild-eyed radicals here, right? The, the, the prescription, the things that we're talking about here we're not saying you're, we're supposed to get rid of school districts or that we're supposed to like states are not going to have borders anymore. We're going to live in some, I don't know, hippy dippy utopia or something. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, uh, we talk about early in the paper, uh, many people on this call might be familiar with sort of G.K. Chesterton, the philosopher, theologian, novelist, British guy, um, his uh, admonition that if you ever happen upon a fence in a field, know why it was put there before you tear it down. 
right? So we're not talking about change for change's sake. What we're trying to do is understand why these fences exist, why these borders exist, what problems they might cause, how changing them, what the knock-on effects of them might be. Now, we talk about in this paper three kind of stakeholder groups. We talk about students and I guess families tied up in that. We're talking about homeowners slash taxpayers, and we're going to talk about teachers. Um, ironically, I think today, and, and even in the paper, we're probably going to spend the least amount of time talking about students because chances are, if you're on this call, you, you understand the issue at play here. You look back at that picture of the border between Ledoux and Rittenauer, and you, you understand that um, there are serious implications for having borders, uh, for, for having a situation where people attend schools based on where they live, right? So if, if we have kids, where they go to school is based on where they live, and where they live is a function of how much money their family has, because they have to buy a house, um, we are going to reinforce some of that economic segregation that takes place. We have the potential to freeze lower income families out of higher quality schools or, or districts. Um, the same thing is true. We do spend some time talking about some of the unfortunate historical legacies of school district boundaries and other boundaries that exist that were sometimes tied to the race of the people that were living there, the religion of the people that were living there, some really unfortunate um, sort of uh, lingering effects of, of segregation, of racism, of xenophobia that unfortunately are still linked into um, many boundaries that that, that exist uh, within our schools today. So obviously, the, the the cost that we see here is seeing families that are stuck, lower income families that don't have necessarily have access to it. But it was actually really interesting in the presentation that that we just uh, we we gave recently to a group of people in in New Jersey. Um, someone piped up and I and I think had a really interesting point that said, "Hey, listen, you know, it's not great for everyone else either." Because having to buy a house based on uh, where you want to send your child to school, if suddenly your needs change, your child's need, your child's needs change, the principal at the school changes, the school district adopts some new math curriculum, or they, you know, whatever uh, things that you don't like, suddenly if you want to change schools, you got to sell your house. So it's like this incredibly challenging thing to do, to do something as simple as move your child if we're going to assign kids to, to go to school where they live. So, so it sort of is challenging for everybody uh, with, with respect to students. But the other group that we want to talk about, uh, the other kind of stakeholder group, and I think this is something that, you know, following some of the debate and discussion in Missouri that people are talking about is how making borders, particularly for students, more porous, whether this is through open enrollment, whether it's through charter schooling, whether it's through private school choice, might affect home values. So Marty trained as an economist. I'm, I'm more of a political scientist, or I at least sort of pretend to be one, but we want to get the, the terminology right. You know, as, as economists would say, you know, that, that school quality is capitalized into the value of homes. And there's a lot of research um, on this, we, we, we cite a survey that was done back in, in 2011 that found that a one standard deviation change in, in school quality was about a 4% change in home values. Again, this is sort of the average. There's almost 14,000 school districts across the, the country, so we're going to see a lot of variation there. There are some cases where this is particularly acute, 
Um, you know, I think of when uh, living in Kansas City, there are some of those borders where it's a very big deal, particularly looking on the Missouri and Kansas border. You happen to be on the Missouri side, Kansas side, the houses can be tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in difference to one another. Um, but even if we just sort of look at the mean and take a conservative estimate, um, at looking at what you know what the the median home price in, in America is, and taking four percent of that, sort of at the low end, we're still talking about a lot of money that is tied up in this. Um, and so we can see both good and bad, right? If we want to do the sort of Chesterton Spence exercise here, we can say, look, it might not be the worst thing that some portion of people's home value is tied up in the quality of schools because that encourages them to um, be involved in schools and push them to be better. I think that's a perfectly fair point where we say, listen, you know, you're going to vote in your local school board election. You're going to care about what's going on there, because if those schools go down uh, in quality, your home value could go down in quality. I think that's 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 absolutely fair enough. On the other side of the ledger, though, you know, there might be people and perhaps a lot of them who don't want their home value to be tied up in school quality. They recognize that, you know, sure, I can vote in a school board election, but that's sort of a limited ability to really determine what's going on in these schools. And so a lot of stuff that's outside of my control is shaping um, how how much my home is worth, right? It's not whether I put in a new kitchen or whatever, but it's whether the, the schools went down. Um, and, and the same sort of thing that we talked about with families earlier, this sort of stickiness that exists because you've bought your home, school, you know, school quality might change or home value changes. Well, I want to get out with, and you got to sell your house. You got to buy a new house. There's all sorts of reasons why just sort of transactionally, that's a really difficult way of thinking about sort of uh, home values and school quality and, and all of those things. And again, tied into what we talked about earlier, problems of if home values are going to be connected to school quality, lower income people are going to have challenges in, in sort of accessing that system. So while uh, in, in both of these cases, there may be some reasons people like neighborhood schools, there might be some pro-social reasons why we, we would want people's home values to be tied into schools. In both of those cases, there are also some serious, serious downsides. So those are the first two stakeholder groups, students and families and uh, homeowners slash taxpayers. Marty is going to take it away and talk about our third stakeholder group, which is teachers. Yeah, so when it comes to a public K-12 education system and teachers, I think we want a system that allows this free flow of teachers. So you know, say um, areas that, you know, have uh, marked with teacher shortages, they can be filled, those positions can be filled by teachers from areas where you have excess labor supply, or perhaps teachers from uh, other industries. Well, as it turns out, teachers can be locked in by pension borders. Uh, these borders usually take the form of state boundaries, but in the case of Missouri, they can, you could have a uh, pension borders within the state too. Uh, Kansas City uh, and St. Louis City, they each have their own uh, pension system. And then outside of Kansas City and St. Louis City, you have uh, the state system. And when you cross those borders with even just within Missouri, um, you, there are really large fiscal implications um, for those teachers who are moving. And so these borders, uh, they, place certain groups of teachers uh, at a disadvantage um, and at a risk relative to others. 
Now, every state has a retirement system and they offer their own retirement plans for public school teachers. Most teachers, as in Missouri, uh, they are covered by what's known as a final salary defined benefit or DB plan. Um, also sometimes called a traditional DB plan. So 92% of teacher of public school teachers nationwide, they have access to these plans. And 85% of those with access actually enroll in them. So the vast majority of teachers are um, covered by these DB plans. And these plans are intentionally designed to reward teachers who, who work in a system for a full career. And they're designed uh, to disincentivize through penalties, um, you know, workers from leaving a system early. Teachers that work in a system for a full career, they can count on a secure retirement, but the story is very much different for teachers who are more mobile. So why is that? Well, one reason is that pension benefits accrue in a highly uh, non-smooth, non-linear manner over the course of, of a teacher's career. And I'm, I'll, I'll show this, uh, what, what that looks like to you um, shortly. But these accrual patterns, they occur because eligibility requirements for these plans are arbitrary, and they're mostly based on, on age and on years of service. And so this arrangement, it works to create very strong uh, pull and push incentives to these key eligibility points. That is, they're designed to pull, uh, pull teachers to work up to a certain time. And then they're designed to nudge teachers out after a certain time. And so by design, traditional DB plans are backloaded. And as such, they are designed to reward stayers and, and penalize early leavers. Finally, many uh, DB plans lack portability. Not all of them, but uh, the vast majority of them. What that means is that if a teacher leaves early, they can usually receive a very small pension benefit, or they can get a, or they get a refund of their contributions, but they don't have access to the employer contributions. And so the amount that they're receiving, uh, leaving early, uh, compared to say, it's going to be much less compared to say, um, like a 401k um, or a defined contribution type plan. Uh, Mike, can you go to the next slide, please? So Equitable Institute analyzed the retirement security for public employee pension plans where they looked at how well state-sponsored plans serve short-term teachers, how well they serve medium-term teachers, and how well they serve full-career teachers. Not surprisingly, um, of, 63, the, of the 63 retirement plans, um, teacher retirement plans, 55, the vast majority of those, they work very well for teachers who stay in a plan for a full career. But for teachers who stay for 10 to 20 years, only five plans serve those members well. And for teachers who stay 10 years or less, just two plans uh, work well for those members. Um, next slide, please. Okay. So this is a chart that plots how pension wealth accrues for a representative teacher in Connecticut. So imagine a teacher who leaves a system during a certain year in their career. They're going to receive this pot of money for the rest of their retired lives, okay? So it's like a lump sum. 
what this chart is showing is that it shows the size of that pot for each year if they leave the system for that for that uh, particular year. Now, teachers in Connecticut, they don't receive a pension until they vest uh, after 10 years. So the size of their pot is zero. They don't, they don't get a pot um, until they vest. But once they vest, the size of that pot will grow slow, very slowly um, early on in their career. Then uh, around their, the 40s, it's going to ramp up a bit. And then when they get into their 50s, then it really starts to to ramp up, and um, you see these uh, you know, these discrete jumps. The 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 sharp sharp jumps, those that you see, those represent these different key retirement eligibility uh, milestones that they're reaching. And what you'll notice is the the big hill um, at the end of the graph. Uh, that's that's the backloading feature, which is very common um, with defined benefit plans. Now, um, economist uh, Bob Castrell from the University of Arkansas and a friend of the Show Me Institute, Mike Podgurski, who's at uh, SLU, they showed um, that on average, the retirement benefit for a teacher who splits a career between two pension systems is going to be about half of what the benefit um, would be had they stayed in a single career uh, or in a single system for a full career. And this chart shows why. So if a if a teacher works 30 years in Connecticut, um, that teacher is going to receive full benefits and they're going to have a secure retirement. But if that teacher splits that time between two different pension systems, they're going to yeah they're going to get they they'll receive two pension benefits um, if they qualify. But those benefits are going to be much smaller. Even if you add those benefits up. Um, the sum of those two benefits is just going to be a fraction of what that teacher could get um, if they stay in Connecticut for a full year. Uh, next slide, please. So this chart shows how much each year of work is worth in terms of retirement benefits. Um, so, so this is the marginal benefit for each year of work. Imagine a big empty bucket, all right? And each year shows how much pension wealth is being put into that bucket for you know for different years of work. So you see that some years are worth nothing. Nothing. Um, those are the years that uh, the teacher is not vested yet. Some years are worth a little. One year is worth a, a lot, and then some years, um, you know, at the end of the chart, um, at the end, of, you know, into their mid fifties, some years actually take away from the bucket. So that's the kind of tax um, on those teachers. For, for a teacher who enters Connecticut's system at age 25, her 55th year of work, that's her 30th year of work, is worth more than $120,000. So just working that 30th year for that teacher, they're going to put $120,000 in, um, in addition to all of those amounts shown before um, as well. But, but the pension wealth the um the year before and the year after it's worth less than forty thousand dollars so some of you might be wondering well is there something really special or magical about age 55 for teachers and is there something uh say a hundred thousand dollars less magical um about age 54 or age 56. Well, I'm not aware of any research that says that there's something really special about age 55. 
So that's just it's just an arbitrary feature of um, of the system. And then after age sixty two, uh, you see that the pension wealth turns negative. So if you work, um, you know, that sixty third year, the money is being taken out of the pot. Um, so the, the plan then is effectively working as this implicit tax on teachers after age 62. So some teachers may be really effective at some of these ages. Some teachers may not be effective um, at all at those same ages. But these features, th this is all indicative of the strong incentives for teachers to stay in a system to certain arbitrary points. And then these strong incentives to push them out regardless of an individual's um, effectiveness. So, so these are some of the problems with the with, with pension borders. And now that we've covered problems with um, all these different borders, uh, Mike, what can be done about it? Great. So I, I obviously picked this image purposefully uh, for those sort of uh, travel buffs. This is the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, which at one point was a very important border, right? Um, That's where Checkpoint Charlie was. But now as the, you know, the Berlin Wall falls, communism falls in general, it's just a place you can go visit and admire the architecture. So sort of what does it look like for some of these walls to, to come down? Um, Marty's going to talk in a bit about some ways to deal with some of the pension borders that he just talked about, which, you know, it's just really, it's so difficult to see. And, and Missouri is such an acute place for this, of people going from the Kansas City system to the suburbs of Kansas City or the St. Louis system to the suburbs of, of St. Louis, which is a perfectly normal way for people to work in, in their careers, the penalties that they pay for that is, is difficult. And it's something that we see across the country. And the same thing is true if you want to go from public school for a few years to private school to back to public school and whatever, the, the penalties um, that are associated with that are troubling. But if we're talking about the two the first two groups that we talked about here, which is students and homeowners, um, uh, we're talking about basically how do you, how do you minimize some of these uh, borders? Well, um, you can have intra and interdistrict open enrollment, right? So either within districts or between districts, you can allow students to cross those borders, go to a neighboring school district, or just go to the school within their district that they're not zoned for. There's obviously charter schooling. Now, Missouri is kind of an odd case for this because it's one of the only places in the country that geographically limits charter schooling. In most other places, there's much more autonomy for school for children to enroll uh, across uh, boundaries, uh, across borders. That's definitely uh, an opportunity for, for breaking down uh, boundaries. And then obviously there's, as we talked about at the beginning, the increasingly popular education savings accounts, which don't just break down borders, but geographic borders, but this is a sector border, right? So now you can attend private school, um, placing education savings accounts for those that are unfamiliar, you know, place a student's funding in uh, into a flexible use spending account that they can, you know, spend on private schooling, they can spend on tutoring, they can spend on a lot of different allowable uses. So the question becomes, though, so what do we think might happen? So we've talked about a problem. Here are some potential solutions. Here are ways to make those boundaries more porous. What do we think is going to happen? I, you know, if you've been coming to Show Me Institute events, and I know because I've sp spoken at a lot of them, we've talked a lot about charter schooling, a lot about education savings accounts. You, you've definitely you've definitely heard those. But one of the things um, that obviously is something that's very interesting in, in Missouri right now is this idea of open enrollment. And I think there's been, as I mentioned earlier, like a lot of scaremongering around this about what might happen if we allow students to enroll across boundaries. Well, the beauty of it is there are other states that have done this, and we can see what some of those impacts are. And I just want to give you the brief case study of the Scottsdale Unified School District. 
Maybe some of you have gone on vacation to Scottsdale. Um, it's a very, very nice, very wealthy um, suburb of Phoenix. And it has a very um, sort of, if you want to call it stereotypically, but suburban school district. Um, Arizona has pretty robust open enrollment policies. And you'd think, you know, Scottsdale would be the kind of group that people that are opposed to, to open enrollment would sort of try to scare. Say, oh my gosh, what would happen if you allow other people uh, into your kind of Tony suburban school district? Well, of the 22,000 students in Scottsdale, they let in 3,800 from out of district, right? And, 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 and Arizona has ways, it's much harder in other states for districts to be able to opt out, but they can, like they can find ways to not admit students, but Scottsdale doesn't. They let in a huge number of students from out of district and within their district, students about 5,500 don't go to their uh, uh, assigned school, meaning that they're within their district or they go to other districts. So what we see in Arizona is movement of, of students between districts and so far, it seems kind of like everything's okay, right? That 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 school districts are not worried about this. In fact, they are going out of their way to admit more students into them. So I think the sort of parade of horribles that we've heard about, if if districts or communities want to participate in them, this, the proof's in the pudding. Scottsdale, if it was such a problem, they would admit far fewer students, and they don't. So I think that that's one way of, uh, of looking at this. But the second thing, and so that's thinking about sort of students, but that's thinking about the schools as well. But I wanna talk about homeowners because this is another sort of avenue of attack of, of school choice, of open enrollment, but of school choice for large, which is sort of like, well, Mike and Marty, you said earlier that home value uh, or uh, school quality is capitalized in home value. I bought this house to be zoned for this great public school, if suddenly anyone else can attend it, is my house gonna go down in value? So I think that there is definitely the possibility of that happening. I don't wanna sort of downplay that and say that yes, insofar as part of what you were doing was buying an exclusive right to a quote unquote public school that sort of, sort of functions like a private school because you have to be rich enough to afford it, but if you no longer have that exclusive right, sure, your, your home value might go down, at least in the short term. But that's a small part of a bigger story. And there's two sort of complicating factors that we talk about in the paper, and like, I'd like to add to that kind of narrative. The first of which is if you look at it, not necessarily the micro impact for that individual homeowner, but if you care about the city, the county, the region, we just sort of zoom out just a little bit, you realize that the loss for, for one person will be the gain of someone else. So if we go back to like the Ledoux Rittenauer border there, right? Insofar as, and I haven't checked on Zillow, but I would imagine that this is true. Um, you know, let's just say that one of the two identical houses right across those borders one of which is sort of quote unquote artificially more expensive because the the schools are it's zoned for higher quality schools and one of them is lower. Well, if we allow that border to become more porous, sure that the the house that's artificially high might come down, 
but the house on the other side of the border is artificially low, right? Because it doesn't have access to schools. So it could come up. So on like a macro level, net, net, you know, throw in whatever, you know, buzzwords you want to use. I think a lot of it kind of washes out because we have some, some homes that are artificially high, some homes that are artificially low. And when you allow people to move, it all kind of comes out in the wash. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Okay, that's great for St. Louis or it's great for Missouri. Or it's great for St. Louis County or whatever. But what if I'm high with the house who loses out? perfectly fair concern. That's where the sort of second complicating factor comes in. And this is based on some work that researchers like Bart Danielson, who's down at NC State, and others have done that, again, takes a kind of bigger picture look of areas that offer school choice and how that makes them more attractive. So, uh, and to sort of cut to the change, can offset a lot of these problems. And the example that I give is imagine if a company wants to move to somewhere in suburban St. Louis, right? Um, and you say, hey, listen, you know, I, that's awesome. You want to bring your C-suite executives, all your VPs, your middle management. You want to bring a whole bunch of people that that, that um, are going to live and work here. Well, you know, here's like the three or four school districts that you want to send your, your kids to. Um, oh, by the way. Um, all of you are going to have to compete against one another for the houses that are there, right? Because you have to live in the school district in order to send your kids to that school. So you're just going to be fighting each other and driving up these prices. So like technically your house is going to be worth more, but you're going to have to pay for that, right? So your house is worth more, but your mortgage is higher. Um, and it could be a really sort of difficult thing that could cause stress and people might not live exactly where they want to live because they're they're trying to stick to these school districts. Think about an alternative scenario where there's much more school choice in that area where you're able to say to those folks, hey, listen, it's actually not that big of a deal where you live. Um, you can send your kids to a bunch of different public schools. You can send them to a bunch of public charter schools, to a bunch of private schools as well. And the money sort of follows them into whatever um, place that they're going to. Um, so if you want to live someplace, you know, you like one part of St. Louis more than another, you can just go ahead and live there. You know, you want to be closer to downtown or you want to be farther out or whatever. Um, uh, I'm trying to name St. Louis landmarks, um, thinking about, you know, where's the nearest Ted Drews? I don't know. That's where, that's what I want to be close to. But, um, so, so that's again, one of these cases where that sort of second pitch is a rising tide that lifts all boats, right? Because it's, oh, wait, this is great for everyone. This is going to be a much more enticing place for us to go to. And that's a much more sort of natural way for home prices to increase because of the real sort of amenities and, uh, that, that are available to, to families and to people who potentially want to live there. So I think that when we look at the, the case for the students is obviously like the clearest one that we see, right? Because we see these, the, these very clear cases where because of where kids live, they are locked out of opportunities. The case for homeowners is slightly more complicated um, and, and a bit more challenging when we think about it. But I think if you take the big picture and you understand the kind of macro effects, I think there's a positive story to tell there too. And so I'm going to turn it over to Marty to talk about teachers and, and bring it on home. Yeah, so so there's just this undeniable momentum for school choice across the country. Well, when it comes to teachers, how about having teacher choice as well? So to if if you want to create a system that allows this free flow of teachers and get rid of these weird um, you know arbitrary incentives that and features that um, I, we, you saw earlier, well states could offer benefit choice 
um, is one solution by offering retirement plans that work well, not, not for only full career teachers, but for all teachers, um, especially for mobile teachers. Or they could change their current plans as well. That would be another option. Um, you know, pension reform and reforming the plan could accomplish this um, by making plans more portable, or they could, you know, offer alternative plans that work better. Um, now, the when it comes to this uh, point of view, you know, wanting to uh, smooth out these incentives, the type of plan doesn't really matter. Um, it's the the really it's the design that matters. So you could have uh, very well designed defined benefit plans, um, like South Dakota does. Um, and you can have very poorly designed uh, defined benefit plans, just like uh, the same goes for defined contribution plans. Um, now, having these plans where the benefits accrue smoothly and where they remove these arbitrary rules and incentives, that's just going to, um, that, that will help teachers so they can make retirement benefit, uh, retirement decisions that are not based on the financial incentives um, and, and the timing of those pension spikes, but instead they're able to make choices about the timing of when they leave a system based on their life circumstances and other factors. Um, next slide, please. So having a system that works for all teachers, I think it's gonna make the, it will make the teaching profession more of just that, um, a profession. It's also going to put teachers on a more secure path to retirement, and it will remove these peculiar incentives and that that create these wedges in the teacher labor market. And it's just going to make teaching more dynamic, so that teachers again can move freely, and and they're able to find the settings that best fit their own circumstances. Um, last slide. So. We have a system of public K-12 where you have twin students who can be in different districts or different attendance zones. And they can, and those students would have access to very different quality schools. And therefore, they would have um, probably very different futures. Uh, we have a system where you could have two identical homes um, located in different districts. And those homes would fetch very different prices on the on the market. And we have a system where you can have two identical teachers who who devote the same number of years to teaching, but they might make different decisions about where they teach um, and for how long. And those teachers would because uh, they would have very different levels of retirement wealth and and retirement security. So there's. There's a lot of research out there that suggests that um, that cho uh, educational choice, making you know these borders more permeable, uh, research tends to lead positive and show and demonstrates that um, more choice is going to lead to more integration, um, better outcomes for students, uh, better outcomes for families, better outcomes for communities. And so the question stands. Can universal ESAs and other reforms, um, can it reverse the effects that borders have had on students, on homeowners, and, and on teachers? And so with that, um, thanks for listening and can move into Q&A. Great. That was great. 
Um, you know, it brings up so many thoughts. This is an excellent report. But I wonder, <clears throat> when I ask folks all this, this quite often, do you think that we're at some sort of an inflection point? And did the pandemic just speed it up? Whereby I hear you, Marty, trying to just so kindly talk to people about why the last century's uh, organization of the teaching profession might be time to begin to try to say goodbye to it. It's just like, you're just gently holding people's hands and saying, I understand why it worked for your grandmother in 1965. It may not work going forward for the kind of teaching force we want to need and have. And I hear the same thing that you're saying, Mike, like you're anticipating all these questions, right? Of course, people are going to be upset. They're going to say, well, I bought a house and I ought to be able to do this. And, you know, the, these these district lines are sacred and I want to be a pirate and not an eagle. Like, this is a sacred thing to me. And like, I'm constantly trying to let people come to their own conclusion to say, it might be okay if we try something different than the pandemic happens. So so to, to sort of a two-part question, and you can start, Mike, Mike, do you see this as an inflection point? And then secondly, do you think there's a a tipping point beyond which where you're defensive, like, don't worry, we're not getting rid of districts. You don't have to panic. There could be a tipping point where you'd be like, maybe if that's a panic situation for you, you could, you should start. I mean, won't there be a tipping point where the old structure of district and then kids are going all different directions kind of won't make sense anymore? So sort of, I, I would answer in, in two parts. I may forget the second part. So I'll, I'll remind me of the, the districts going away things. I think it's an important point. Um, but the first one of this sort of inflection point idea, I think, yes. Um, and part of the reason was, I think the pandemic showed lots of people who thought they were, they had bought homes in these districts that quote unquote good, or that were like sort of linked to that they thought were quite responsible, we'll put it that way, responsive. their desires. That's where they thought they were living. Not necessarily follow parents open that were in fact closed. You had districts that were closed that folks wanted open. You had folks doing online learning. You had all of these sorts of things. And uh, I think you're seeing a whole uh, a whole rash of new questions that you're seeing parents going to school board meetings and coming up and saying like, what's going on here? Like why? And it cuts across so many different levels from like, how are we teaching math to um, to, yeah, whether kids had to wear masks or whatever. There were like all of these issues that were tied up into that that a lot of families were like, oh, wait a second. This isn't exactly what I bought this house for. And then again, they were like, oh my God, I bought this house. Like, I, this is why I bought this house. And interest rates are going up and I don't want to sell this thing, right? Like, so there's all of these things coming together where you're just, people, I think, had this realization like, oh, like this stickiness and linking all these things together is not necessarily a great idea. If I don't like what's going on in my school, I have to sell my house to do something about it. Find a new one. Like, no thanks. Like, I want to open up this to, to other options. So I think that was a realization that that took place sort of across the spectrum that, that, that people realized. Now, the second bit of it, like, are school districts going to go away? Like, I don't think so. I mean, our polling every year we ask families you know if money were no object if 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 logistics were no object where would you send your kids to school and a steady third of americans want their kids going to traditional public schools right about 40% say they want to go to private schools which is like four times how many actually do smattering in charter schools you know more probably two or three times the number of people that are actually homeschooling which is its own interesting story 
But so I think there's always going to be a group of people that want to have traditional public schools and want them around. Now, does that mean some of these districts might need to consolidate? Does it mean, you know, maybe states are going to look more like Florida, where you have school districts that are contiguous with things like county lines as opposed to having 518 or whatever um, Missouri has? Or the other flip side to it, and uh, Susan, I know you've written a lot about this, but ways in which if we're going to keep these school districts and kids are going to be moving around and we, we have to talk about like declining enrollment and there's all of those sort of issues that are tied in there as well, school districts could innovate more and use things like course access or others to say, hey, listen, yeah, we're still this little a shrinking school district, we're a small school district, but our students have access to a wide range of courses because we participate in course access programs. So we're not tied to what math teacher we can bring in here or whatever. They can take a course from Mizzou or whatever. So I think that there's definitely, hopefully school districts are seeing a lot of these forces coming down the tracks, right? They're seeing the sort of dislocation that took place with the pandemic. They're seeing declining enrollments. They're seeing desires for choice. They're seeing all of those and saying, we need to innovate. And again, states like Missouri have given them the tools that they can use to innovate and try and keep people. So, so that's my my hope is that all of this actually strengthens some of these school districts, gets people to sort of be bound more together by offering the sort of wider set of things with the tools that they have. Once they get over the panic, right? I mean, I think that like the panic around open enrollment in Missouri is like that it's going to end public education as we know it. And of course it hasn't happened in the last 35 years in places where it exists, but um but I do want to say, Marty, like in terms of the teacher labor supply, and that is something that we've been hearing about so much in the last couple of years, the teacher shortage, teacher labor supply, what should we do? We should just simply, the obvious answer in Missouri is we pay them more. That's got to be, that's got to be it, right? And and I sort of coupled with um, something that you talked about, Mike, you know, we had this kind of weird situation happening in Columbia where our flagship university is, our accountability program in Missouri is convoluted and terrible, in my opinion, and I'm not the first time I'm on the record saying that, but there's a magic number in this accountability system, which is 70. It's like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? So it's 70 in Missouri, and if you're below 70, you're in dangerous territory. If you're above 70, you're okay. So Columbia Public Schools is a 70, which means it at rest. it's at risk of being uh, not fully accredited, which has been a very lonely group of districts in Missouri, maybe not so much anymore, but how does Mizzou recruit professors and families to come? And we have people teaching college students, and yet we're restricting who can teach our K-12 students. Like, to me, Columbia just seems like a, a community that's ripe for charter schools, school choice, something to be able to continue to convince people to move to the middle of the state of Missouri, right? Put up with our winners and you know, and want to come to Mizzou and not to, uh, you know, uh, Stanford. I don't know. But anyway, Marty, like, don't you think that we could be thinking more outside the box in terms of the teacher labor pool and how we uh, sort of restructure this system so that it's attractive to our best and brightest college students? And it, uh, and it also at the same time gives families more options and places where I know they want it. They just haven't been able to have it. Kind of a convoluted question apologize <laughs> no absolutely I, I mean so when you open up k-12 to choice and you expand educational options for families i think you're also expanding options for teachers as well um if you go broad um you know 
I think you're going to invite a lot more innovation. And so you're going to you're going to increase the chances that teachers are able to, you know, find somewhere that is really that works well for them. And if you also and I also want to go back to your question about if uh, you know choice is going to destroy public schools, mm -hmm. you know our district's going to still be around. Oh, sure. uh, I think they still are, I, and they're probably going to still be the dominant um, you know educational provider. Um, at least that's so far um, that's been the experience you know that we've seen in states that have had uh, choice programs for decades now. Nowhere have we seen anywhere that districts, you know, just disappeared and everyone just ended up in private schools um, at, at all. No, I, what, what happens and what we know from research is that uh, districts, they change how they operate things um, and they tend to improve. Uh, you know, I think there's been about 28 stu empirical studies looking at how choice programs affect uh, public school students and 25 of them uh, find that, you know, the, the choice raises the test scores for those kids who remain. So they're not being left behind. The kids who remain in public schools, um, they're, they're learning better. Um, they also have, uh, they're, they're attending school more. Um, so it reduces absenteeism and it reduces sus suspension rates. And and I think a uh, part of that is you've got better matching going on. So <laughs> not only you, do you have, uh, you know, kids who are leaving that that for whatever reason that public school is not a good fit. Um, so kids who remain are a good match for that classroom, and that also makes the job of the teachers easier too, right? I mean, you hear we hear all this, um, you know, talk about uh, we need smaller classes, right? Um, well, one way to do that is to hire more bodies and open up more classrooms, right? But another way is to, you know, release, you know, um, a valve, you know, uh, adjust the valve and let students who, at least the, the option for, for exit. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it just, you have better matches for all parties who, who are, you know, involved in education. So if uh, people want to learn more about this report or or download it uh, and more about what you guys have written, where can they find all of this? I think yeah. our colleague Sarah quite kindly put it in the chat. So you can see there's a link there to um, K-12 Without Borders. You can always, always check out um, www.edchoice.org. All of our new research and everything gets posted there, too. Great. Well, thank you so much. I mean, people might listen to this later, so I appreciate that. Um, it's it's great to hear, you know, I, I feel like one thing that pandemic has done is given us who research education policy work for decades. So I appreciate your fresh take on it and uh, walking us through it. It's been really great. Thank you. Thanks for having us.